Good morning again. Go ahead and open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. And as you finish finding your way there, we're going to be focusing particularly on uh, verses 16 through uh, the end of the chapter. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning looking to you to meet our needs. Often we try to meet our own needs our own way. Often we look to others to meet our needs when we should look to you. But this morning, we look to you. Ask that you would work. Even as we look at this missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas, as we look at what you did in this first century context of the gospel going forward, going out, I pray that you would speak to us this morning, help us to understand the gospel, help us to understand your working in this world, your working in the kingdom of God. I pray that you would help us to set aside distractions, particularly those we bring with us in our own mind as we think about our calendar for next week or as we think about this past week and our failures or whatever competes uh, in our minds for, for uh, your attention. I pray instead that we would look to you. Father, um, we ask for your work this morning. Speak to us, we pray. Be glorified in this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I always, uh, in teaching high school students particularly and talking about uh, the different stories in the Bible and the histories and things like that, I very often direct people to the map in the back of your Bible. And so let's go ahead and turn there. And uh, your Bible should have a map in the back. And I know there are good Bibles that don't, but I just... It helps me think through the history of what's going on, particularly as we look today uh, at the first missionary journey of Paul. So if you will turn back to the back of your Bible, you will probably have a map. And if, if you don't have one in your Bible, look on a neighbor or see if the Pew Bible has this. I, I, I forgot to check in there to see if this map is in there. But you're going to look for a map of Paul's first missionary journey. And uh, possibly it's together with the second missionary journey. But I said uh, in the announcement that went out earlier in the week about what we were going to be studying, it said Acts chapter 13 and 14. And so there's two chapters there. So I trust you all faithfully read that and studied that. And we're not going to focus on all of that this morning. We're going to drill into just one piece. But as you look at your map here and have that picture in your mind, you can see that uh, it's the, Paul's first missionary journey starts up in Antioch in Syria. And uh, there was a church there. It was a, a great church. We've already talked about them. It was a growing church. And Paul and Barnabas had been working and ministering there for some period of time. And uh, Paul and Barnabas were uh, set aside by the Holy Spirit and uh, through the elders of the church there and sent out on a missions trip. And so they journeyed across to Cyprus 
So they sailed over to there to Cyprus and they ministered throughout Cyprus. And if you remember the story that happened there, they, they run into uh, Elimus the magician who was a Jewish false prophet. And he was, he was uh, trying to direct people away from the gospel. And so there was a confrontation there where he's blinded and whatnot. But there's also a man there named Sergius Paulus who was a, a, uh, a proconsul there. And he was a very important man in the, in the authority structure. And uh, he believes... And so he hears the message and he, he believes. And so um, Paul and Barnabas set sail from there and kind of do an odd thing. You, you kind of wonder why they went where they went. But they sail up to Perga and then they go up to uh, into um, Antioch of Pisidia. And that's where we're going to be focusing our time today. And uh, history tells us that Antioch of Pisidia is where Sergius Paulus was from. So his family was there. And so it kind of makes sense strategically that if you lead a very important person to Christ, uh, politically like, like Sergius Paulus, that you might go and visit people he's connected with. And so that's kind of what Paul and Barnabas do. The Bible doesn't tell us that was their motivation. That's just my observation and the observations of others. But they, they went to, uh, there and, uh, went to Antioch and ministered there. And, uh, you can see, uh, kind of what happens there, um, where that's what we're going to focus on our time today. Well, they end up leaving there and then they go to Iconium and they minister in Iconium for a while. Again, that's in, that's in Turkey, kind of central Turkey there moving towards and, uh, they go from Iconium and down into Lystra and Derby and then they turn around and they come back out. So they spent, uh, some time in each of these places leading people to Christ, developing new churches. And then when they got to the end of their journey all the way over there in, uh, in Derby, then they turned around and kind of backed out in a sense, revisiting those same churches, appointing elders in each of the churches they came to, to administer and take care of the body there, discipling the people, encouraging the disciples who were there, and then on the way back out, and they end up back in Antioch in Syria at the end. And so that's the whole journey. And uh, there's a lot that goes on in there. There there are many things we could focus on there, but there's only one sermon in that whole period. And so we want to focus our attention on the one sermon, and that sermon is found here in Acts chapter 13, really beginning in verse 16. And so we're going to focus our attention on uh, that part this morning. But before we, before we start reading that, I want to um, kind of alert us to something that's going to be a consistent theme. And actually, it's already been a theme in the book of Acts. And that's that as the, as the gospel goes out to these different places, they face opposition. And sometimes it's uh, opposition from different kinds of people, from Gentiles, pagans who are opposing them for one reason or another. But very often and consistently in the book of Acts, it's it's the established Jewish uh, religious leadership that stands against them. And uh, Paul would, you know, Paul and Barnabas would come to town and they would meet in a synagogue and they would preach and people would be very interested. And the next week there would be piles of people to hear Paul preach again. And suddenly the Jewish leadership would, would kind of start to get a little jealous because this guy is getting all the attention and he's going to lead a people, the people away from us. And, and what will happen to our, our authority, our, our, our power, or what's going to change in our synagogue that we get to, uh, to be in charge of and things like that. So there was, there was uh, opposition from that leadership structure and and that's going to be consistent we're going to see that through the remainder of the book that that happens quite often and and it shouldn't be a surprise to us when we lived in russia we uh we were there for three years from 2007 to 2010 and our some of our greatest opposition that we faced politically 
Some of it was from the government because they thought we were, we were with the CIA and therefore they should, you know, clamp down on our visas and not allow us to continue working there. Some of that was from the government, from Moscow. But much of the opposition that we faced, and particularly in Krasnodar, was from uh, the local leadership of the Russian Orthodox Church. And they did not want us there. They were very jealous of their people. It's the Russian Orthodox Church. And so they've got authority over the Russians. That's the way they see it. And here we were, outsiders, coming in, and we were, we were uh, winning people to our side is the way they looked at it. And so uh, the, the, the Russian Orthodox Church and the leadership there really stood against us in a lot of ways. And they themselves had a lot of political influence and, and could uh, affect laws and influence people and stuff that would cause the government to pass laws that would be restrictive to us. And so we're, we're familiar with this kind of thing, and, and we're familiar with jealousy, right? We, we don't have to look all the way to the Russian Orthodox Church to find jealousy. We can look right in our own heart and see that there's some of that. And so it shouldn't really surprise us when we see that here in, uh, in the Jewish leadership in all these places. And so with that, as a background, with that in mind, let's, uh, you're already open to Acts chapter 13, and I, I just want to read sort of his background to get us rolling today, verses 13 and following. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he preached his sermon. And so right there you have the title for our message today, The Most Encouraging Word. This was a normal thing in a Jewish synagogue. They would read from the law and the prophets, and then they would give what was called a word of encouragement or a word of exhortation. And uh, it would usually be based on the text that were just read. And Paul stands up, and he's, you know, you can imagine his grin that they asked him, if, if you have any, any word of encouragement, you know, visiting Rabbi Paul, um, would you please deliver it to us? And Probably didn't take Paul too long to get up there and say what he was going to say, but that's the setup. And so he uh, he gets up there and he addresses them. And and we read what, what he says here. He says, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my own heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. And so that's the beginning of his message. And I want to just point out a couple of things. First of all, I've titled that first section, Redemptive History. 
redemptive history. He, he didn't tell the entire history of the nation of Israel. He didn't start uh, all the way back and detail every individual thing that he could have. <clears throat> but he did tell a broad spectrum of their history. And it was the development of redemption culminating in Christ. Right, and so uh, we have this idea. If if you if you paid attention, if you recognized it as I was reading it, who was doing the acting in almost every instance, or who was the subject of almost every verb? God was. God was acting. God chose them. God led them. God delivered them. God did this. God did that. You can, you can look through there and see that He was the one acting. Well, it tells us a couple things about history. History doesn't just happen. It's God at work particularly as we're looking at the development of the history in uh, the Old Testament, what we call redemptive history, God is acting and doing things on purpose so that he can put together uh, all of history to lead a particular direction. And that's what Paul is doing. You know, you might wonder why he's telling Jewish history to a bunch of Jews, right? They knew their Old Testament. They knew that history, right? He was recounting it for them and he was putting it in, in place for them so they would understand the direction that it was going. But you already noticed uh, that God was the one who was at work in each of those places. And so Paul is pointing out this didn't just happen. This was a particular direction that this was heading. And as we reflect on biblical history, we can reflect on the, that that is true. Stuff didn't just happen and people didn't just make decisions and it didn't just uh, work out that way. God was at work behind the scenes accomplishing all of those things. And, and did, did you notice what he did there? Is he, he was lead, you know, he was talking about the judges and then he, and then he said, uh, and, until the time of Samuel and then they appointed Saul, uh, they, they asked for a king and so God gave them Saul and then after he had removed him, he gave him David and then he jumps like 900 years and says, through David came Jesus the Savior, right? So he built up enough of that redemptive history to to make it clear that Jesus is the point of the whole thing. Jesus is the direction that all of that is heading. And so uh, redemptive history culminates in Jesus. He's the point. And that would have been new information. At that point, the Jews who would have been listening would have been, aha, because that's a brand new thing. They knew all of the other things Paul was saying. And when he got to there... That would have been something new. All of the Old Testament points to Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. And actually, that's what Luke says back in Luke chapter 24 and uh, verse 27 on the road to Emmaus. Remember, Jesus meets those two and he walks with them. And this is what it says. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So what he had done, what Jesus had done with those disciples on the road to Emmaus was to point out that's about Jesus, that's about Jesus. This is all a giant arrow pointing toward Christ. Redemption, his, redemptive history points to, culminates in Christ himself. But that's not all. That's not all. In his sermon, he, uh, he moves right past, John, uh, right past Jesus. Did you notice that? He introduces Jesus and you think, all right, now he's, now he's to his point. He's really going to develop Jesus, right? But what did he do? He said, and then came Jesus, who was a savior, just as he promised. But before him was another man, John, who came baptizing with a baptism of repentance, right? Who claimed, I'm not the one. And so uh, he, he skips right past Jesus just for a moment to introduce this idea of repentance, that there must be repentance because John came before Jesus. And what was John doing? He was calling all the people to repentance. 
Not just the exceptionally bad guys, not just the, you know, the, the ones that everyone could look at and say, well, obviously that guy's a sinner. He was calling everybody to repentance, calling all the people to repentance. And so the idea is we need to understand that we ourselves need to repent before we hear, before we understand, or before Jesus really makes sense to us. And that's the case with us. When we're sharing the gospel with someone, the good news of salvation in Christ doesn't mean all that much if the person doesn't first understand the bad news that they themselves are guilty, that they themselves don't measure up to God's standard. God has a standard, that standard is perfection, and that they don't meet that. And therefore, they are under God's condemnation, under God's judgment and His wrath. When a person finally understands that, now the good news is good news. Now the good news makes sense. And this is, uh, I, I often tease that the hardest part of getting someone saved is getting them lost first. Helping them to realize their need for a Savior. Because we, we often think we're doing just fine. We're pretty good when we compare against one another. And Jesus, uh, Paul makes clear here that even uh, he moves right past Jesus to point to that need for repentance that John the Baptist brought. And so all must repent, not just some people, not just the exceptionally bad, but all people must repent. And then he's going to back up and he's going to restart and fill out what he means to say about Jesus. And in doing so, he's talking about promises fulfilled. Look at verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Jesus' death is not a surprise. It's a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. It was already written of beforehand. It was written of in in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 and in other places. His death beforehand was written of. It, it, It wasn't a surprise to God. It wasn't a surprise to those who uh, later on can look and understand Scripture as Jesus taught them to understand that all of Scripture points to Him. And He says, here these leaders in Jerusalem and the people in Jerusalem, they, they knew the Scriptures. They heard them every week. Every week they heard them, but they didn't understand. And they didn't understand, they didn't recognize Him. They didn't understand that those Scriptures pointed to Christ. And so, as a result... They fulfilled those scriptures by putting him to death, by doing all the things that the scripture said would happen to him. We continue in verse 29. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. 
And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. And so we have Jesus not only being put to death according to the Scriptures, not only dying and suffering all those things that were talked about according to the Scriptures, but also raised according to the Scriptures. He says this this too is something that you should have recognized, but you didn't recognize. You know the Scriptures, you hear the Scriptures week in and week out, and I'm telling you the story that this Jesus that I'm telling you about is the one that the Old Testament was talking about, who would be put to death and who would be raised from the dead. I think it's interesting as we read through here that once again we have God being the actor. God raised him from the dead. Right? And so we're jumping back into that, that picture where it's very clear to us that God is the one who is, uh, who is doing the acting. Even though it was the, uh, the wickedness of the evil one or the, uh, uh, those who were thought they knew scripture and heard scripture every week, but ended up putting Christ to, d- to death, even though they were the ones who did it, it was actually God at work behind that. We looked at that earlier. And it was God who's at work to raise him from the dead. And so we have that list of passages there. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Quote from the Old Testament. And then another one, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Another quote from the Old Testament. You will not let your holy one see corruption. These are prophecies about the Messiah. They were given, uh, some of them to David, given to him as if he were to expect, uh, in some sense, that, that God would not let his holy one see corruption. And then what happened to David? Well, he, he died. And he was buried, and his body went the way of all flesh, and he saw corruption. So it wasn't fulfilled in him. And what Paul is saying is that was an arrow that was pointing forward to the Messiah, the one, the Holy One, whom God would not allow to see corruption. And we see that being fulfilled when he himself was raised from the dead, when Jesus was raised. And so the resurrection of Christ, this is another thing that Paul is digging out of the Old Testament, pointing to them something they should have known, and uh, he, hasn't, uh, he hasn't taught them anything that wasn't already in their own scripture except the name of the person, Jesus. Look at verse 34. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. The word you in the quotation there is plural. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. This promise isn't being made to Christ as much as it's being made to those who are in Christ. Being made to God's people. Jesus has fulfilled it and now that promise is made to us so that the promise is made to David of eternal life. The promise is made to David of there being a kingdom with his with his offspring sitting on the throne for eternity. That promise is fulfilled for those who are in Christ. And so the blessings come to us and not just even Jesus himself. And so we see that promises of the Old Testament are being fulfilled. And so that leaves a choice for the people. Let's continue reading in verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of 
Moses. And so, uh, well, let's continue. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will, would, will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. We notice there now the message. Now it comes the time when he, he has told the story of Christ. He's, he's told of the events of, of the coming of Christ, of his suffering, of his death, and his being raised from the dead. He's told all of that, and now he turns to them and he says, Now the choice is before you. Now is the time to respond to what I've said. It's interesting that he, he talks here about a couple of different uh, things that I've called graces, right? He says, he talks first of all about the grace of forgiveness, right? Look at verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Well, we're used to hearing about forgiveness of sins in Christ. But think in the, in the Jewish mindset. Only God can forgive sin. Only he can do that. And here Paul has introduced a new person to them, Jesus, and saying he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament, he, the, the prophecies about the Messiah who came and suffered and, and died and was raised from the dead. And now you are offered forgiveness of sins through Jesus. He's making a very bold statement that for the Jews would have been a big deal to hear because only God can forgive sins. And so this would have been an alarming thing, right? For us, it's kind of, we hear it a lot, particularly those who come in church uh, regularly. We, we hear about forgiveness of sins in Christ. And, and we often think about that, right? We even sang about it this morning, about His blood covering our sins. And so our sins are washed away. Our sins are, are made clean. We are forgiven of them, right? God has put them under the blood, we say. And so we have forgiveness of sins. But He doesn't stop there. Oftentimes we stop there. Oftentimes we, we think in terms of, my sins are put away, but now what? Well, He continues verse 39, he talks about a, a grace of justification. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The word translated freed in the ESV there is the word translated in other versions sometimes as justification. Justification. So that we are declared right. We're declared free. We're made free. We're no longer under the, the bonds of the law to complete the law, to do those things. Instead, we have freedom. We have been set free from those things. And so I'm trying to point out a distinction here of two different things that are right in the text. One of which we think about a lot, which is the forgiveness of sins that we have in Christ. My sin is covered. My sin is, is done away with. It's past. But now what? Now what do I do? Do I, do I still need to please God? Is there, do, I need to, do, do I need to obey God and or, or obey the law to make God happy? Is there something I need to acquire or achieve? Or, or what now? And he goes on and he says, In Jesus, you are freed from all the things that the law couldn't free you from. You're freed from those things. You're justified. What that means in other terms is that not only is the, the negative of sin put away and sin is forgiven, but also the righteousness of, of Christ is put upon us who are in Christ. So it's applied to our account. 
So when God looks at us, he sees the completed work of Christ, his obedience. Because you and I have not obeyed the law, however much we may or may not have tried, or even how much we may or may not try now. But Jesus obeyed the law perfectly. And so he has completed it. He has fulfilled it. And in Christ, we are freed from those things which we could not be freed from. We we would still be under the law trying to obey it, trying to figure out how to do what it takes to please God. And what Paul is saying is that in Christ, God is pleased with you. Your sin is put away, and the righteousness of Christ is applied to your account. And that's a that's a joyful thing. That's a that's an amazing thing. That's a revolutionary thing for us to think about that God looks at us and he sees the righteousness of Christ. So that our salvation is not uh, my sin is put away and I must do something in order to accomplish. Instead, my sin is put away. It's forgiven in Christ and I have justification. I have his righteousness applied to my account. And so uh, that's, a, that's a, a part of our message here that I, I want us to pay attention to because uh, often we forget about it or we don't think about that aspect or maybe we don't know about the fact that, that his righteousness, when we are put in Christ, not only are our sins put away, but his righteousness is applied to our account. And so when Christ, uh, when God looks at us, he doesn't see how well you're doing and how much you've accomplished and whether you have or have not made the grade. He sees Christ. And it has been accomplished. And so you're freed. You're freed from that. You're freed from those things under the law that, that uh, the law could never set you free from. And that's why I've called this section grace of justification. But he continues on and he says that the alternative is judgment. Look at verse 40. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. That sounds like really good news, but when you look back at the Old Testament passage, it's a promise of judgment, a a promise of destruction. And so he says, beware you who hear. You have a choice before you. What will you do with this message? The alternative to this salvation in Christ where we have the, the blessings of having our sin put away and forgiven and the righteousness of Christ applied to us, the alternative is to turn the other way from all of that and to receive judgment instead. That's the alternative. And we see, let's continue reading in our passage. We pick up in 44 and we're going to see the mixed results of the people there. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of the district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. 
And so we see what I talked about earlier, the, the rejection that we received at the hands of many within the Russian Orthodox Church, particularly the leadership. We have a very similar reaction here by the Jewish leadership. They're very jealous of their people. They're very, very jealous of the position of power or authority that they have. And so when they see that so many people are listening to Paul and Barnabas, so many people are interested in hearing about this Jesus, they, they get jealous. And so they start telling rumors and, and, uh, and stirring up strife and, and trying to drive Paul and Barnabas out of town. And so that's the, that's the one response, a jealousy and a rejection. There's another response. And you'll notice it's mostly by Gentiles here. When the Gentiles heard this, verse 48, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. So there's a, there's a joy. When some heard the gospel, they responded with a very great joy. They responded with a, a sense of freedom they had never felt before. We, we live in a different time in our culture and, and our religious background and all that is different than theirs. That in, in, the, in their understanding, in the Jewish understanding, if you wanted to have a relationship with God, if you wanted to be made right with God, if you wanted to draw near and worship to God, you kind of had to become a Jew in order to do it. Right? You had to go through a certain process, and that's why he refers to God-fearers at different points here, you who fear God. But the idea is they're Gentiles who have made a move towards Judaism, and so maybe they took on circumcision, or maybe, they, maybe they're following the dietary laws or, or whatever. They, they are sort of becoming like a Jew in order to have access to God. And what's the message of the gospel here? Paul preaches in that context. It's a mixed context. There were some Gentiles there, God-fearers, and Jews, and he's rejected there, and the Gentiles are overjoyed when he says, God has made us a light to the Gentiles. This gospel is to go to the Gentiles as well. You don't have to become a Jew anymore in order to have access to God. The gospel is for all people, Jew and Gentile alike. And so people were overjoyed that they didn't have to go through that process. They didn't, they didn't have to take on those changes. The gospel was for them where they were. And the gospel is for us where we are. The gospel is for the rich and for the poor. And it's for those we like, those we admire, and those we really don't like and really don't admire. But the gospel is for them. And there's a great joy in that. There's, imagine being, being separated, realizing that there's a difference between you and the people of God. You're excluded uh, from the people of God. And now all of a sudden, an apostle comes along and says, by the way, this isn't just for the people of God from the Old Testament. This is for you as well. And there was great joy and there was rejoicing and there was, and there was faith. And so you had this joyous, uh, joyous faith, joy, response of joy and belief in this gospel. And it was a wonderful thing, and it was in stark contrast to particularly the response of the Jewish leaders. I want you to notice something. Look back at verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, when I read that, some of you translated that. Maybe, maybe your version's different, but, but some of you translated it different. And, and, and in your mind, it read like, uh, as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. But that's not what our text says. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. What, what's going on here? This seems backwards from the way we normally think about it. This, this seems different. But he, he's talking about the fact that God is at work, just like God had been at work 
Did, did you notice the very first verb back in, in 17, the God of this people Israel did what? He chose. He chose our fathers. And then God did this, and then God did this, and then God did this, and then God brought Jesus. And then here we have just another confirmation that God is the one who is ultimately at work in these situations. He's the one who actually appoints those who will believe. We translate that backwards in our mind and we think believing enters me into a state of being appointed. But it's very clear from the grammar of our passage here that the appointment by God happens first. It's primary. And the response is belief. The response is when those who have been appointed hear the gospel, they respond in faith. This is very clear in our passage. Maybe it goes against the way we tend to think about these things. Part of that is because we've heard, we've heard different things throughout our lives and, and we've, we've read that uh, in a sense we're in the driver's seat. God has reached 99% of the way down and it's up to you to make that last effort or something along those lines. Or in some way I get to make that call. And our passage here shows that from the very beginning of Jewish history you see God making the call. You see God at work in redeeming. He chose our fathers. And then he did this. And then he rescued them there. And then he brought this man. And then he brought Jesus. And he did all of these things. God is accomplishing a purpose. He is saving a people for himself from among lost people. We see a clear evidence of it here in this passage right here. Now, when we look, when Paul was preaching, he had no clue who was going to respond and who wasn't. And so what did he do? He preached broadly. He went to the Jews first and he preached broadly. And there was a great reaction at first and then it was reversed and they got, they got driven out of there. So they said, okay. And they went and preached to the Gentiles instead and the Gentiles rejoiced and many of them believed. Paul had no idea beforehand who it was who was appointed. So he preached to everyone. But ultimately, that salvation, even, even that salvation is the work of God accomplished in our lives. And so we have a a strong presentation here in this passage of God's sovereignty at work, even in the salvation of people. First of all, in the the calling of a nation and the choosing of a nation and all the work that he did and in bringing Christ and all that was done, God was strongly at work. And here he is also in those who believe. And so you have some who responded and they rejoiced. And they had great faith and uh, they, were, they were joyous that uh, the, the gospel would come to them. So there, there are some, some difficult things in this passage, maybe. They've occurred before in our, in our book and they, they occur elsewhere in the Bible. There's very similar language in, in John chapter 10 particularly where he talks about uh, before that va- very great passage. Why don't you turn there real quick. John chapter 10. A very great passage that's an encouragement to many of us. It's about uh, God's people hearing uh, His voice. And so we're in John chapter 10. And look at verse 27. John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will... Never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. What comfort that brings to the believer. 
What joy there is in that passage in the believer. How many times have I turned to this passage to find hope when I have been in despair? Because there is hope here that there is no way to to wiggle out of the hand of Christ. But did you see verse 26? What about those who don't believe? In verse 26, speaking, he says, uh, But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. We want to flip that around and say, You are not among my sheep because you don't believe. There's something greater going on. God is at work in this. There's a, there's a condition we find ourselves in that we would never choose God. We would always choose ourselves over God. And God, in His very great mercy, overcomes that to draw sinners to Himself. He overcomes that natural desire that, that we have to serve ourselves, that we're all born with, to be self-serving. I want to be in charge of my own life. Maybe that looks like a, a, a pristine-looking life, but I still want to call the shots. We were all born that way. That's a depravity that we have. But God is merciful. And, and for those that He's chosen, He reaches past that and He draws people to Himself. Those who are a part of His sheep. Those that He calls to Himself. But what about the other group? What about those who don't believe? The passage in uh, Acts chapter 13, Paul speaking to them. He says... Uh, Verse 38. No, excuse me. Uh, 46. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. We're turning to the Gentiles. What about those who don't believe? Did God just not let them believe? Well, the fact is, our own natural bent that we have keeps us from believing unless God overcomes that to draw us to himself. We get what we want when we persist in unbelief. They judge themselves unworthy of eternal life. And so that's why he uses the word beware. That's why why there are cautionary words here. Lest we continue on getting what we want, which is unbelief. I have a few takeaways that I want to mention uh, before we close. The message of salvation in Christ is to be spread far and wide to all people. And we can praise the Lord that it has come to us. And we then get to become messengers to other people. The gospel is for all. Preach it widely. Share it widely. God uses it to draw people to himself. How dare we sit on it? I don't want to be one who sits on the gospel and doesn't take it out to preach to other people. Secondly, when those we share with don't respond to the gospel... We, we don't lose heart. We remember back to the history of the Old Testament all the way through that Paul was talking about that God is in charge. God is in charge. He chose the people. He brought this. He changed that. He delivered these. God is at work. And so when we share and someone doesn't, uh, doesn't believe the gospel, we don't lose heart. God is still at work. And maybe this person will believe the gospel later. But God is still sovereign. Thirdly, when we share with someone and they do believe, God gets the glory because he was the one who overcame their natural bent to want to turn away from God, to draw them to himself. And so he gets glory and we give very great praise. I can think in my own life 
and remember when God did that. I was not seeking God. I was not. And God reached through that and drew me to himself. And suddenly I believed. And many of you can think back to the same thing. Fourthly, think about yourself. If you're honest, you recognize that there is nothing about you to endear you to God. Likewise, your faith is not the result of some greater wisdom or common sense that you have as opposed to your neighbor who doesn't believe. What did you have to offer you to God? You believed because you were appointed to eternal life by God. Because God was merciful to you. And so we give God glory for that. And we praise Him for that. There's one final takeaway for us. If you hear this gospel message and you don't believe in Jesus, Luke would say that you are judging yourself unworthy of eternal life. You're making that call that you don't want it. The responsibility with that choice lies with you, not with God. In pursuing what you want, you reject the Messiah. That's why I urge everyone who hears the gospel to beware, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. And so this is a serious message, but but you notice how it resulted for the two different sides. The same message resulted in, in rejection by those who were jealous and by those who wanted to pursue their own kingdom versus the great and overflowing joy of those who realized that the salvation was for them and trusted in Christ. There's great joy. And so when we proclaim the gospel, when we even right now share the gospel, there there are two different responses. From the heart, we respond with joy, praising God for what he has done, giving him glory for the salvation that we have in Christ, that our sins are put away and the righteousness of Christ is applied to us. Great joy that we have and thanks and praise that will be for eternity to God. And at the same time, the same message of the gospel responds in a, in a bitterness and a hardness of heart and a greater separation as one judges himself unworthy of eternal life. And so I, I plead with you, if, if that's you, trust in Christ, repent, turn from that desire for your own kingdom and turn to the mercy of God that is presented to you. That's my desire, to see that kind of joy. In Jesus, we have eternal life and all the holy and sure blessings of David. In Jesus, we have forgiveness of sins and freedom from all the things that we could not have obtained by trying to obey the law. What a, what a, what a message of grace. What a gospel that is presented. What a Christ we have. What a Christ we get to serve. What a Christ we get to worship. Let's do that now in prayer. Father, we do worship you. We worship what you have done for us, that you have delivered us, that you sent your Son, whom we worship, who went to the cross for us, who paid that penalty for our sins, who lived a life of obedience, was put to death in our place and was raised again to newness of life, declaring for all to see that you approved that the words he said were true, that the sacrifice he had made was accepted and that forgiveness of sins is offered in him and we might have newness of life. If there are any here, Father, who have not trusted Christ, 
who continue to persist in considering themselves unworthy, counting themselves unworthy, judging themselves unworthy of eternal life, I pray that you would draw them to yourself even now, that they would repent of that sin, turn to you, put their faith in you, and that they would have this joy that I get to have in Christ, that we who are in Christ get to have. I pray that you would do that, Father. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of you working to bring salvation to sinners, to call for yourself a people for your own possession. Thank you that you have called us to be members of that. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. At the conclusion... uh...